Hey guys, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome back to the Science Centric Podcast. In this episode, we're delving into video games, a subject that on the face of it doesn't seem very scientific. Sure, there's a lot of technical wizardry that goes into creating these games, but that's not science, it's more like engineering. But there's a growing body of scientific literature about video games. Not how they're made, but how they impact our brains and our lives. Researchers are looking at questions like, do violent video games make us more violent in real life? Can games be addictive? And how much time sitting in front of the screen is really good for us? Our guest in this episode, psychology professor Pete Etchells, has taken an in-depth look at the research around video games. In his new book, Lost in a Good Game, Why We Play Video Games and What They Can Do for Us. We talked about some common concerns parents in particular have about so-called screen time. The positive impact video games can have on our lives, including a touching personal story of Pete's. And we spent a good deal of time talking about the common pitfalls of psychology research, which not only affect the study of video games, but literally every other sub-discipline of psychology. Let me put it this way, you're going to come out on the other side of this episode questioning every psychology study you've ever read or read about. But before we dive into it, head over to sciencecentric.com support to help keep this independent podcast going. We accept direct donations via Patreon and also get a little kickback on any purchases made through our website at no added cost to you. You can also show your support by sharing this episode with a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at ScienceCentric. All right, enough of that. Let's get on to the good stuff. I will formally welcome you to the Science Centric podcast, Pete. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So um, your book is called uh, Lost in a Good Game. Um, why we play video games and what they can do for us. Um, which, so having read your book, I think another title that might have worked for your book is In Defense of Video Games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I, I feel like it's sort of a, a treatise on, you know, why games aren't as bad as maybe they are sometimes portrayed in the mainstream media. Do you do you think that's a that's a that's a fair assessment and um, and just for the audience you're you are actually a, uh, a psychology researcher I mean this is something that you actually study as an academic so um, yeah. how does that inform your uh, writing of this book sort of in defense <laughs> maybe in defense a little bit of what you do as well um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so you sort of making it sound really terrible but <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> But um, I think, so one thing that I, I don't think the book is, is um, a, a sort of an apology for video games. Um, but I think you're right in that it is to a certain extent a, a defense of them. 
there are a lot of books out there and a lot of uh, commentators who are always too quick to uh, to jump to video games being the big bad in society, whatever it is that we're talking about. It might be violence, which is the hot topic this mm-hmm. week. Um, it might be addiction, whatever it is. And there's relatively little out there that actually goes, well, hang on a second, let's, let's see what the actual science says. Try and take a step back, whether we like games or not, whether we play them or not, let's try and have a look at what the science says and figure out what's actually going on here. So that's kind of what I try to do um, with the book. And yeah, I've been researching video games in my day job for about five or six years now, I uh-huh. guess. So that, so the, the book kind of came from that uh-huh. in a sense that um, I was doing a lot of science blogging around the same time as well. And I, I wanted to try and merge the two things. So try and get something a little bit more objective, a little bit more dispassionate, I guess, in a way out there about video games so that people can look and see what the scientific research actually says and, and maybe come to their own decisions about what that actually means for whether they're bad or good for us. Um, I think in, in writing it, uh, and, and in particular in writing about how we do research in, in the realm of video games, yeah, it does come uh, across as a bit of a defense at times, I think, partly because... Yeah, when I tell people that I'm a video games researcher, the the first thing that they usually say is, all right, yeah, so you play on your Xbox all day then. <laughs> um, which is true, that is what I do, but I'm doing it for research. Um, but, you know, it, it's sort of seen as a, a nonsense thing, not a real science. Actually, when you get to grips with this sort of stuff, it's really hard to do good science on the effects that video games have for all sorts of different reasons. It depends on the type of effects or behaviors that you're interested in, but the whole violent video game question Uh and whether that affects, um, say, aggressive behaviors or not, that's a really good example because how do you measure, how do you test aggression in a lab? When we're talking about trying to understand whether if there are certain types of games that if certain types of people play them, they might be at risk of harming themselves or others, which is a really particularly salient point given what's happened in the US over the past week or so. That's an important question to answer, right? Um, And if you think that video games are involved in that some way, then we've got to try and test that in the lab. The trouble is, what you're talking about happening in the real world versus how you test that in the lab are two completely different things. You can't, from an ethical point of view, give people in a lab a violent or a non-violent video game to play and then stick them in a room with each other and see if they hurt each other. It's a completely unethical sort of experiment to do for for obvious reasons. So we've got to use these proxy measures of aggression, things that look like aggression but aren't actually... Uh, going to cause anybody harm or be dangerous for anybody. And that's where lots of problems creep in. You've got to be quite creative in trying to come up with something that sort of looks and talks and acts like aggression, but isn't actually aggression. And, you know, that's a near impossible thing to do. I mean, it seems, sorry, I just wanted to jump in there, but I I mean, so, you know, video game research would fall into the category of psychology research, essentially, because you're studying people and how their brains and bodies interact with video games. Um, I mean, it seems, so I come from like a genetics background and that's a hard science and you can really control things and we work with fruit flies and we you know we can control every aspect of their lives <laughs> but when you're talking about people um and in psychology in general it seems like it's a very hard 
thing to uh, study because people are have so, there there could be so many confounding things that would mess up your experiment versus if you're looking at something that's more physical um, and, yeah. and controllable in, in a lab situation. So I've always felt yeah. like psychology. Um, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm also wary of it for that exact reason that that I, I it seems like kind of mushy in a way whereas harder sciences aren't um do you i mean do you think that's fair or <laughs> is it just upon the researcher to to uh go, go farther to con to control all the all the variables that could confound the experiment i think i think you're right in both ways there i think it, it, you know, it is a, a, a difficult, messy science, but it, it is a science. Um, you can do good research in psychology, but you've got to think really hard and really carefully about what it is that you're trying to test, how you're trying to test it, how you're trying to manipulate it. And like you say, how do you control for all those other myriad things right. that might impact on whatever it is that you're looking at in particular? I think a lot of psychologists start off trying to do that well and maybe they kind of lose their way sometimes and that's partly why we're in a situation within within psychology where um we're finding it very difficult to replicate what we thought were really core um fundamental findings particularly in social psychology um, it's so easy to get things slightly wrong or introduce another confounding variable or even things like um, have participants screw up your experiment for you? Right. So there are these well. There's a well-known effect that if you know if a participant figures out what you're trying to do with your experiment, then they can start doing things like um, they'll try and. F so if they think they figured out that you're looking at the effects of violent games on aggression, one thing they might do is go, oh, they're trying to see if. I'm playing this violent game and it might make me more aggressive. So I'll say that I'm really aggressive <laughs> on the measure afterwards. You know, they're not actually feeling aggressive at all, but they think that's the answer you want. So they're trying uh, to be a good participant. But you can get the opposite as well. It's called the screw you effect. Yeah. So this is this is more often what happens with these sorts of experiments that they go, ah, this idiot's trying to figure out whether violent games cause aggression. I really like games and I don't want him to see that. So even though I'm really angry, I'm going to pretend <laughs> that I'm not aggressive at all. And it just completely skews the results right. so it's very hard to kind of tease those sorts of issues out and that's coupled with things like a lot of experiments either due to just the sheer time constraints or the financial constraints of the way that scientists psychologists do their experiments they don't test very many people so if you only test a say 20 or 30 participants in these sorts of social psychology experiments. Um, you know, this is a bit oversimplistic, but as a general rule of thumb, those small sample sizes mean that you're introducing quite a lot of noise into your data. Yeah. You know, invariably these studies are on psychology undergraduates at universities who are, uh, they're, they're weird, uh, which is that they invariably they're Western educated. They're from industrial oh, okay. backgrounds. Weird and, uh, weird they're democratic. <laughs> yeah, it's an I acronym. I didn't realize. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's a paper out there that, that says you know psychology uh, participants are weird. <laughs> um, but the point is that you know they're a fairly homogeneous group, yeah. and what tends to happen with these sorts of studies is that people try to generalize to the rest of the human population from these very small studies on very specific groups of people and it's maybe not the, the, the best thing or the right thing to do there. so just to, just like say, sorry just to back up to one thing you said i mean it seems like the best 
uh, about you know people reporting how they're feeling or or figuring out the how the experiment uh, what the experiment is trying to find. It seems like the best experiments almost have to trick the participants into thinking that they're participating in a, a study that's completely different. Um, so they can't mm. guess those things. So they can't skew the study in some way, right? So that's one way of doing it, definitely. So you try and make it so um, deceiving that they, they, they think it's about something completely mm-hmm. different. I would maybe say you could go a step further than that and say probably the best sorts of experiments, which are the hardest to do, are the ones where even if a participant figures out what it is that you're trying to do, they can't game it. So, you know, it might be like a reaction time task where if, if they figured it out and they're trying, to, they're trying to manipulate their own results, they would do it in such a haphazard way that it would be obvious to see that in the data. You know, their reaction times would be ridiculously slow or they'd just be at ceiling level in terms of their effects. Um, so there are some sorts of studies out there. It's something that I've been trying to do in, in the realm of violent video games and, uh, and aggression. So trying to come up with a new measure of aggression, again, another proxy measure of aggression, whereby... Um, it's basically a sort of face perception task where you're trying to look at um, make make decisions very very quickly about whether a face you're presented with is ambiguously happy or ambiguously angry and if people try and game that sort of experiment it's really obvious from the data so you can move remove that uh, that mm-hmm. particular participant um, so if you can come up with paradigms and, and methodologies like that I think that's a really good thing to do but you know it, it really depends on the sort of question you're asking and and what area you're looking at yeah really. it doesn't always work for everything so um so even if you're you know you have a, a decent sample size you have come up with a sort of heterogeneous sample so you're not they're not weird uh, as you said um and you've designed this experiment correctly um as you alluded to there's this sort of big problem in psychology which is the what's called the replication crisis and having worked in science on you know large genetic studies what we used to what we used to the way we would refer to it as a, is as a fishing expedition. <laughs> so, so <laughs> you would accumulate a bunch of data, um, and then you would go fishing for an analysis that would give you a result that was interesting in some way. Um, I mean, is is that a fair way to represent this this replication crisis and an, and an issue with yeah. this bias within psychology? In a sense, I think that's 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 one part of a very kind of complex picture, and that what you're kind of describing there is an exploratory analysis, which is perfectly fine to do if that's what you're being open and honest about. You know, if you're doing something in a completely new area where nobody's really got much data on this, and you don't know what the important questions are to ask or what the the right sorts of analyses are to do, it, it's fine to do a bit of fishing around and poking around to try and figure out the best way to approach that question. I think the problem that's happened in a lot of psychology over the years is that people have used certain sorts of what we call questionable research practices to mold that sort of exploratory research into into a confirmatory mold, as it were. So the sorts of papers that you might see out of these sorts of studies where somebody's run 20 or 30 different analyses, but they only report one or two, the one or two that worked, uh-huh. as as if they were the ones that they intended to do all along. And if that sort of approach 
molds how you formulate your hypotheses as well. So something known as harking, which is hypothesizing after the results uh-huh. of them. So you do this big fishing exposition, you find a, a significant finding, and then you go, actually, my hypothesis <laughs> related to this particular finding in the first place. And if you just present your paper in those terms, then you're not being very honest, right? You're not actually explaining what it was that you did. And also it means that the the models that you start developing, the hypotheses that you start generating aren't particularly useful. They're good for explaining that specific analysis that you did, but they're not very good at explaining future uh, sets of data. So it's not particularly good for science generally um, if you engage in these sorts of things. But there are all sorts of pressures on scientists, not just psychologists, um, all sorts of pressures on scientists to do these sorts of things, right? So, um, and I talk about this in the book, I I, I kind of completely veer off in one chapter and start talking about the replication crisis. Which um, I found really interesting, the way you you broke that down and and explained it so well, by the way. That was was really great. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it, it... it's very directly relevant to video games research but it's a general problem in that um, as a scientist you know you, you're a human, right? You need a job. You need to be earning money so you, you can look after your family or keep a roof over your head and things like that. And there are certain things in science that are more conducive to getting a permanent job than others. And unfortunately, some of those things are counter to what we might consider good science. Yeah. So um, institutions value things like how many grants you've got, which is in part as a result of how many papers you've published. Um, how many papers you've published is in part uh, based on you know what you do with your data. So one of the examples that I set up in the, the book is, is an idea of, you know, say, you, and it's a really facetious example, but just to kind of simplify things, say you run a study where you test 100 participants. Now, one way you could do, look at this is you could write a single paper up that has a sample size of 100, and you, know, you get one paper out of that. But it might be a good paper because it's a decent sample size for the question that you're asking. The other thing you could do is write two papers with 50 participants in each, or you could write 10 papers with 10 participants <laughs> in each. And if you go on that route, then this, the science suffers because you're kind of artificially separating out your sample sizes, not on any in terms of any sound theoretical rationale, but purely because you want more papers. Right. And you know, you'll probably get 10 different results out of that, uh, what we call salami slicing, basically. <laughs> uh, you get 10 papers out of that. That might make you look more attractive in terms of a job because you've got 10 papers published in the last year. But they're not good science. <laughs> so these sorts of issues we've seen, like I say, not just in psychology, but across science generally, but they've really come to the fore in psychology over the past eight or nine years. And there's this whole raft of what we call questionable research practices that um, we've seen scientists engage in that aren't, you know, they're not fraud. And a lot of the time, I think people don't do them deliberately. It's just because, you know, that's how they've been taught to, say, do stats or how to uh, work with data once they've got it. But if you have enough of these together, then what you end up in is this situation where lots of papers are being published claiming that these effects exist when actually in reality they, they probably don't. But the good papers that show that they don't it's really hard to publish them because they're show, showing null effects. Yeah. So you have, have this literature that's biased towards all of these positive findings because for some reason we value um, positive findings over negative ones. Um, but they're all rubbish papers. Right. Um, and all the good stuff is stuck in people's file drawers. It's just gathering dust. 
Um, and of course, if you if you that, search if you search on the you know through Google or something, you're going to find those ten papers that sort of flood the search results and think, oh well, this is obviously what's really going on, and and maybe you won't even find that paper that that was the good one that really had the had done everything yeah. correctly. And you wouldn't know any different. And I've had so many conversations with PhD students over the years where, you know, you go to conferences and you, you go and talk to a PhD student who's just presenting, you know, the first set of data from their first experiment where they're trying to replicate a big study. And they're, they're sat there scratching their heads because they're like, you know, this paper, everybody shows this effect, right? This this finding, whatever it is, there's multiple papers on it. I keep trying and I can't, I can't get it. And that's because they're doing the, the science properly, as it mm. were. Um, and they, they're not aware of the fact that, you know, there are these thousands of other uh, scenarios where people have tried to run this particular study and it's just not worked, but those have disappeared off the face of the yeah. earth. So it's, you know, it paints quite a negative picture of, of psychology in particular, I yeah. think, that chapter. But I think there are lots of positives to come out of it as well. So where I think these issues have really come to the fore in psychology over the past 10 years or so, at the same time, I think it's psychologists who are really trying to... Um, make amends and make changes and try and improve the state of affairs in yeah. science through things like you know, relatively simple things like open science practices so making your data available um, for anybody who wants to use it um, making your materials or your analysis scripts available uh, means that people are less likely to fiddle around with their data um, they're more also more likely to catch errors in their analysis scripts and things like that either because they've found it because they want to be more meticulous because they're worried that it's going to be out there in the real yeah. world or or somebody else has come along and found that for them. And and you talked about something I hadn't heard before, which I think is really interesting. It's just this idea of pre-registration, where you're pre-registering mm. your methods, essentially, on, on, on the analysis that you're going to do before you actually run the experiment. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, fu it's funny, when you, when you talk to people who aren't scientists about this sort of thing, they're like, why, why aren't you doing that anyway? Like that's a really sensible, sensible thing to do. So, I mean, pre-registration, you see it in clinical trials already, but the basic idea of it is you front load all of your thinking about the design. So before you collect any data, you think really hard about how specifically I'm gonna run my study. And you think really hard about what am I gonna do with the data analysis? How am I gonna do it? And you write all of that down in a document and you put it online. So you, you can embargo it so that, you know, if you're worried about people stealing your ideas, you can embargo it so that it doesn't get actually mm -hmm. released to the public for, say, like a year afterwards or so. Um, or you could just make it completely open because there are relatively few instances of that sort of thing happening. Um, but it's all time stamped. So people know that you actually came up with this before you run the study. So you do that and then you actually go away and run the study as you said you mm -hmm. would. And then you do the data analysis as you said you would. If during the course of doing all of these things, you realize actually there's there's another analysis that I should be doing really, that's absolutely fine. You can do that. You just, you're honest about it. So in your results section, you say this is a, you know, a post hoc um, exploratory analysis, basically. This is something that I came up with um, after the fact. So here's the stuff that I said I was gonna do. Here's some extra bits. And then it kind of leaves it up to the, the, the reader or the reviewer to make judgments about that rather than making it possible for scientists inadvertently or not to go down this route of, oh, that's the analysis that I should have done. I'll just report that. Yeah. Do you think that, that, that doing, I mean, is there some guarantee that the research will be published at that point if it's pre-registered or because what if, what if the result is a, is a negative result? 
uh, is, yeah. it, is it any more interesting to journals to publish it at that point or how does that work so the, so there's, there's two ways of thinking about this one is sort of general pre-registration that's a big debate that's happened over the past few years in that you know if what's effectively going to happen with these pre-registered studies is that they're just going to show a bunch of null results that's really boring so they're not going to get published yeah. actually we've seen quite a few journals really push for um, pre-registration as a, as a mark of quality as it were um, so there are certain journals that will provide various sorts of badges uh, sort of quality seal uh, badges depending on whether the data is open or it's been pre-registered and things like that so it's a good thing in that sense there are a certain there's a specific type of paper called a registered report which is offered by a few journals so Royal Society Open Science is a, is a good example of this and what happens with a registered report is that you you pre-register your study you write up the proposed methods and analysis and then you send that to the journal and that gets sent out for review. So before you've collected any data, it will go out for peer review. It's actually a really nice process because as a reviewer, you get to actually make suggestions or decisions before anybody's actually run the experiment. So in the classic model of science publishing, when you as a reviewer get the paper, it's already been done. So you kind of, sometimes you comment to things like, ah, you did that wrong. <laughs> oh, tough luck. Right, yeah, right, again. right. Whereas, whereas with a registered report, you can say, well, I think you know, maybe this would be a better way or a more, more robust way of doing the analysis, or maybe you should include this and yeah. blah, blah, blah. So that goes through review. And if it, if it gets accepted, the paper gets locked in then. So providing you do the, the study um, in terms of the methods that you propose and you run the analyses that you say you're going to run, it will get published, whatever yeah. the results okay. show. So rather than the emphasis being on novel or exciting findings, the emphasis is on good, strong methodology, uh, which is you know what we want in, in science. You, know, you want to focus on the methods being right, and you don't really care what the results show because you can be more uh, convinced that those results are correct, whatever they are, if you've done the study right itself, rather than being blindsided by amazing, novel, interesting, unique findings that are really quirky. Yeah but invariably just statistical artifacts. Right. I think registration, uh, registered reports and pre-registration, they're not a panacea for everything. They're not going to fix every aspect of every problem in, in psychology, and, and, and nor are they necessarily the right sort of um, journal format for all types of uh, scientific uh, sorts of studies and experiments. But you know, I think they're a really good start, and I think it would be nice to see them more widely adopted. Yeah. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank HostGator, this episode's sponsor. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around-the-clock support, and all shared web hosting plans include a 45-day money-back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my web hosting needs, and I couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCE, and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. Now on with the show. Okay, so now that we've completely ripped psychology apart as as a as a discipline, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about some of the concerns that people have about video games in particular. Um, sure. So, um, in, in full disclosure, I have a, I have a seven year old son who is obsessed with Minecraft at the moment. Um, 
Okay. And pretty much all he talks about. And if there's a lull in the conversation, (laughs) he'll say, hey, do you know how to do this in Minecraft? And and his mom and I will be like, well, no, we don't because we don't play Minecraft. (laughs) Um, But I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of the concerns come from parents in particular. And one of one of the concerns is just it's with video games, but it's with with all the other digital consumption that's going on with uh, TV. You know, you have movies via Netflix and other uh, companies. You have, you know, texting, video games, computer. I mean, Mm. tablet. It's just it's endless. Um, I mean, should we be should we be concerned about our kids time that they're spending on interacting with screens and not interacting with the the 3d world around them i mean what what does the science say there (laughs) (laughs) um i think so i get where you're coming from in in terms of you know uh, so i do scientific research on this and i know quite a few people who do scientific research on screen time generally and if you look at the the best research that we have that compares uh amount of screen time with things like well-being really there's there's nothing to worry about there like it's not that this is the big bad that's melting kids brains but i get from um, a parent's perspective that if you have a scientist that comes along and says well from longitudinal studies that have followed thousands of people there's nothing to worry about that's not actually helpful because from your point of view you've got you know if you're having fights with your kid because they want to play minecraft or Fortnite all the time <laughs> or they're not getting off their phone a scientist come along and say there's nothing to worry about it doesn't really help um, in those specific instances right. But I think we should. I think we should take heart from those longitudinal studies. So generally, the the big scare stories that we see around screens that you know they're really bad for for kids. You know they're really bad in terms of isolation and they they make them more depressed and things like that. There's not much evidence to suggest that that's mm-hmm. the case. Um, I think. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried about things or that we should be completely uncritical about them. I think it's important that we take quite a nuanced view with um, screen-based technology generally, and video games in particular. Um, insofar as, you know, um, I, if, you know, if I had a 10-year-old kid, say, I, I'd be perfectly happy with them playing video games as long as they were under my direction and I knew what they were playing and when they were playing it. I wouldn't just give them unfettered access to whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and have no knowledge of what it was that they were doing. Yeah. In the same way that I wouldn't do that with a movie. So, you know, I talk to parents about this quite a lot and they say, you know, the games are just bad for kids, right? And you, you end up moving the conversation down to, well, you know, would you let your 10-year-old kid watch an 18-rated movie? And of course, the answer to that is no. You know, I'd never even dream of doing that. And then you go, well, why would you let your 10-year-old kid play Call of Duty then? Because that's got a mature rating. You know, it's not aimed at that uh, age demographic. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, sometimes we have a blind spot on video games. They're seen as a childish thing. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Like the, the, the age ratings on them, uh, you, know, you can ignore those. So I think these sorts of issues around parental worries around tech generally, video games specifically, really boil down to 
um, understanding what it is that kids are doing and, and why they're doing it and what they want to do in these virtual mm-hmm. worlds. So I think that's a really difficult task for parents who maybe haven't grown up playing video right. games um, because you know the thing to do there really is to get involved in that thing that your kid's doing and play games with them and get to know games generally so that when your 10-year-old comes along and says, can I have Call of Duty? The answer just isn't no. The answer's no because... And it's followed up with, why don't you think about this game instead, which is actually much better than Call of Duty, like Minecraft, say. And you can have a much more productive conversation about it. I think we're seeing increasingly a generation of parents who did grow up with video games who who are having those sorts of conversations, which is great. Um, But I get that it's really, really hard for parents who maybe weren't in that position um, when they were younger. I think things like very often people who are worried about tech and don't really have much experience or interest in it, um, will often want to default to wanting some sort of guidance on, say, a time limit on them. So they would want a body, an advisory body to say, you know, your five-year-old should have no more than X hours of screen time per day, two hours per day, so that they can use that sort of rule in perhaps an authoritarian way. Interestingly, um, in January in the UK, Um, a body called the RCPCH, which is the Royal College of Pediatricians and and Child Health, Pediatrics and Child Health, issued some guidelines around screen time. And they were really good, actually. They they were talking about the sorts of things that I've already talked about. So they were encouraging things like, you know, making sure that you have meal uh, dinners around the the, the, the Uh dinner table and, uh, you know, putting the phone away when you're having that kind of social time with your family, Um, talking about video game use, getting involved in video game use with your kids. And what they didn't have in there at all was any form of time limit oh, suggestion. And, and actually, actually, at the time, a lot of parent groups and teacher groups were really annoyed with that because they were like, why, why are they being so weak about it? Why are they not being heavy-handed and saying no more than two hours yeah. per day? And the reason for that is that there's zero evidence to suggest that anything like a limit works. Uh, we have some evidence, actually, that it, it spectacularly doesn't work. So in South Co- Korea, for instance, there was uh, something known as the shutdown law, which was um, enacted in 2011 yeah. to try and stop teenagers from playing um, on the internet overnight. So there was a curfew between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. because there's a worry that teenagers weren't getting enough sleep. Um that law had the effect of actually increasing the amount of time that kids played um, online games during the day. They just shifted it to earlier in the day. (laughs) And the the net effect on sleep was that they were getting on average about one and a half minutes more sleep Uh per Uh day. So it just didn't work because there wasn't any evidence for it. So there is some emerging evidence. It's really, really kind of early stuff, but some emerging evidence that suggests that, you know, rather than thinking about things like time limits and trying to impose those in a relatively authoritarian way in the household, trying to um, engage with kids collaboratively about their tech use and how and why they're using things is probably the way to go. So there's some evidence that if you try and do that and say, yeah, well, I I think or I feel that this isn't a good thing because of X, Y, Z, how do you feel about it? How would you feel about me saying that you couldn't have it for more than an hour or blah, blah, blah? What you tend to find, so some studies that have shown, done that sort of thing, and what they've shown is that you, you tend to find that kids will still rebel. They'll still do stuff that you don't want them to do anyway, because they're kids. Um, but they're, le- they're less likely to hide their tech use. 
And I think that's the important thing. You really don't want to get into a situation where kids are hiding what they're doing online from their parents so that they don't even know that they're yeah. online. And that's where you, that's where there's sort of real cause for concern. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And, you know, in our household, we've limited screen time to two, two hours. That seems to be a good amount of time to, um, you know, sort of interact and engage with the game and get into the game, as it were. Uh, without yeah. it sort of interfering with other activities and and you know I think also that there's and and the the um, episode just before this one we talked I talked with a, um, a neuroscientist and you know talking about why being bored is is an important thing as well because a lot of creativity comes out of that so if you're just filling the the time with video games then maybe and and you and and often what we'll hear is like well i'm bored i want to play minecraft you know and it's it's like well Mm -hmm. you know you need some time to be bored because sometimes you come up with these great ideas of things to do you know that you wouldn't normally have thought (laughs) of so i think yeah i mean i i i think the like I understand what you're saying about the harms being probably overblown and 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 sort of that Luddite mindset that oh any technology is bad and and um, you know I, I see it as a nice sort of um, uh, like an extra that can kind of you know enhance learning and 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 you know yeah. um, what am I trying to say that can um, actually spark creativity in a lot of ways in the same way that like playing with Legos would, uh, you know, especially with Minecraft, I see a comparison there, but, but also, you know, it's okay to be bored, I think. Um, and, and maybe that's, um, people fill those little spaces in their day with, with all kinds of different media that they would, they would normally be generating, you know, great ideas, you know? Um, so that, that's my, that would be my concern, I guess, with, with video games. (laughs) <laughs> not, not everybody has really good ideas when they're well bored, that's though. true and too I, the other, the, <laughs> and you can be bored playing video games as well right so that that kind of comparison that you make with lego you know um, i think is a really good one in that you know you can play minecraft for a bit and there's 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 no end goal with minecraft you kind of do whatever you want in the game yeah. right but you can get bored in minecraft i played minecraft and i've been bored and i've kind of just started chopping trees down and i've been like <sighs> I really want to do this. Is there anything else I can do? And that's when, you know, I've I've gone on to build a massive pyramid with all sorts of weird and wonderful tunnels inside it and stuff. You know, completely useless, pointless stuff that I'll never come back to again. But, you know, it's a form of creativity. Um, So I think you're right, though, in that boredom is a really important thing to be able to to do well. You know, it's it's actually okay to sit and, and do nothing. And there is a risk with uh, a sort of always always connected society that, that people will just always pick up their phone and I think the thing the thing that I really worry about in that respect is when it comes to smartphones and, and mobile gaming that there's this uh, plethora of games out there that are really designed to fill those few minutes gaps during the day you know when you've got nothing else to do or if you're waiting for a bus or a train and things like that and um, I, I have a, a, a vehement dislike of those games. I play some of them uh, hypocritically, but um, I really dislike them because when you look at how they how they're built, how they're designed, 
they they look very very similar to forms mm-hmm. of gambling. So these are sorts of games like match three games where you've where you've got a puzzle grid and you've got to match three gems or um, three pieces of candy and things like that. If you look at the way that they're marketed and monetized, they tap into a lot of psychological mechanisms that uh, one-armed bandits tap yeah. into, for example. Yeah. Slot machines. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that coupled with, if you look at the adverts, so a lot of these games, they're free to download, but then you can pay to either get more lives or to get access to extra levels within the game and there's no top end on that spending limit so you can just keep spending and keep spending because there's never any end to the game coupled with um, if you don't spend any money in them you get bombarded with adverts for other games that are similar but if you look at those adverts pretty much every one of those that I've seen recently will say something like this game is so addictive I couldn't (laughs) stop playing it as though that's a good thing to say so there's a sort of really weird situation, I think, with um, the mobile games industry in particular, where you know there's a lot of talk around the addictive potential of video games at the minute, and there's a lot of pushback against that in some ways, which I think is correct. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got games developers saying, "My game's really addictive; you should buy it, and play it." So I don't, I don't think you can do both. You know, I, think, I don't think you can have your cake and yeah. eat it. You know, either they're addictive or they're not. And if they're not addictive, then you can't claim that they are, and that's a good so, thing. So the the talking about addiction there and you make this distinction in the book is is a distinction between uh you know being sort of obsessed with a game and wanting to play it a lot and this idea of this gambling part of the brain that sort of some of these other games are are playing into and there was a phrase that you used it's um variable rewards or something like that that where yeah, it's like yeah. um and i know social media companies do this as well where where they'll um sort of hold your likes uh, on a particular post until there's enough of them that you'll see like oh, oh right, i got five okay. likes on a particular social media post so you're getting and most of the time you log in nothing 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 and then it's like oh you get five likes on that and then nothing 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 so what is the name for that or <laughs> what is that mechanism so, so variable reinforcement schedule or a variable ratio yeah. schedule is uh, sort of what, what you think about it in, a bit in terms of what we call reinforcement learning. So it's this idea that say, um, say you're playing a slot machine and there's a, a 25% win rate. So one in four times you'll win. Now, if that was regular, if it was you play three times and you lose and then on the fourth time you score, um, you won't play that game very often because you'll be able to tap into that pretty quickly. Um, if you start varying it though, so if over the course of say 20 goes, overall there's a 25% success rate, win rate, but it might be the case that you you lose, lose, win, lose, 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 win, win. What happens is that you tend to win, so you can't predict when you're gonna win, uh, but you happen to win just enough that it entices you to play uh-huh. play again. It's sort of they just want they just one more game element, yeah. um, and that's very very strongly compelling in terms of encouraging people to play more in things like uh, casinos and on oh, yeah. and things right. like that. You kind of also see these sorts of things enacted in mobile games as well. So if there's a random element to a, uh, a level on a particular puzzle game, for instance, so that you know it can either be made slightly easier or slightly harder, um, it will be made slightly easier just enough of the time that you can you know you can get past it and get to the next level, which will encourage you to want to play more often. 
And what happens with these sorts of games is that you say you maybe get five lives and every time you lose a level, you lose a life, but they replenish over time. So it might be that every 20 minutes, a life replenishes or every 24 hours. So you can play the game completely freely. You don't have to spend any money or you can spend money to replenish all of your lives straight Uh away. Now, it's somewhat counterintuitive in the sense that if you think that you're playing a game that has this time limit on it, you know, if you if you lose all of your lives, then you can't play the game anymore. You have to stop and do something else because you've got to wait for the next life to come along. But actually, that withhold, we know from various sorts of psychological research that if you withhold something nice from people, it makes them want it more. Mm-hmm. So there's very there's a study that I talk about in the in the book um, where uh, researchers did this with chocolate. So if you give people complete freedom to eat as much chocolate as they want over the course of a week, versus you tell people to not eat chocolate over the course of the week, and then at the end of the week you get them to the lab, get them to eat some chocolate, and rate how nice they found it. The people who had completely unfettered access to it, they, they like it, but you know it's okay. Uh, but the people who didn't have any access to it really, really, really like it because uh, they've had to kind of abstain from it for a while and chocolate's a nice thing. So translating that into mobile games, even though you're withholding people, you're stopping people from playing the game, and you can argue, well, that's that's meaning that they're having a natural break. Actually, it might make them more likely to spend a little bit of money so they can play again yeah. now, so they can fill up their lives straight yeah. away. So I, I started playing this game called Dino Hunter. I don't know if you're familiar with that, which is a mobile game. Uh, I've not seen that and, one, no. And it's, no. it's a very similar idea, so you can either you can it requires you to keep upgrading your weapons your like shooting uh you know implements and the you can either wait to get the upgrade to play the next level or you can pay you know x dollars in real money to get the upgrade and play right Mm -hmm. now so it's kind of the same idea that Yeah, yeah. yeah. And invariably what you find with these sorts of games is that actually you're you're not spending money to directly unlock that thing. What happens is that you'll, say, spend $5 to get 50 gems or 50 gold coins, and then you can spend 10 gold coins to buy this thing, uh, whatever it is in game. And again, it's a very similar parallel to what you see in casinos in that you don't gamble in a casino with money, you gamble with chips. And what part of the reason for doing that is that it dissociates you from the monetary value of what it is that you're doing. So a chip, yeah. you know, you, you will see that it's a, a $10 yeah. chip, but that's a very different thing in my mind to a $10 note. And it's the same sort of thing in these sorts of games in that, you know, we can attach a monetary value to $5 in my account, but it's very different to what we feel uh, about 50 gems or 500 yeah. coins or whatever. So um, all, all of these kind of tricks and, and tactics you see come together almost in a perfect storm in, in mobile yeah. games so they're doing this double whammy in terms of you know they're they're invading that that very precious boredom time that we have during yeah. the day but also they're they're um, they're tapping into uh, these sorts of mechanisms that can lead some petite people if they're potentially susceptible to it to um, problematic gambling yeah. behaviors i mean how how though is that different from say you know just a game that is rewarding you with points or something uh for completing a level or destroying an enemy that i mean you're obviously getting some kind of psychological reward from that as well is there is there a real difference there or is it just that in one case you know real money has been attached to it versus you know some kind of digital points or something like that 
It's it's a really good question, actually, a really mm-hmm. good question. I think this is where a lot of scientists and policymakers are, are finding difficulty in trying to pin down what the issue is. So I think there are some scientists out there that would definitely say yes. You know, any game where basically the objective is to score the highest number of points as possible, then you can effectively treat points as pounds or dollars, right? So they, they can potentially be problematic in a similar sort of way. Um, I... I agree with that less, I think. I think um, these things aren't all or nothing. It's not like a black or white thing that a game is either addictive or it's not addictive. I think there's um, there's a, a massive spectrum um, depending on how the game is implemented, what types of specific mechanisms are in play in the game, um, how it's monetized mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and if all of those things come together in a certain way, then you could argue that this is a potentially problematic yeah. game. Um, I, I, I'm of the view that I don't think games are addictive. Yeah. Um, it's more that there are certain types of mechanisms that can be impl- implemented in games that are addictive. Uh-huh. So those are the things that we should be looking at and trying to assess scientifically rather than saying, you know, is Fortnite addictive or is World of Warcraft addictive? Because I think it's the wrong sort of question to ask. Really. Right. But if you think about things along that sort of spectrum, the difficulty is that you need to try and disentangle whatever it is that we mean by addictive or problematic play from this idea of what we mean by play for enjoyment. Right? So you know, if I play World of Warcraft for two hours this evening and I'm trying to get a particular weapon and in order to do that I need to collect 50,000 eggs from a certain area of the game world and I'm you know obsessively, repetitively going to this area and clicking on something... Am I addictive or am I just enjoying that game because I want to get something that I find personally rewarding right. out of it? Um, so maybe thinking about games in that sort of way isn't helpful in trying to distinguish whether they're problematic or um, addictive or not. What we need to do is look at the w- broader picture of why are people engaging in certain forms of gameplay? What else is going on in their life around them? Is their gameplay secretive is it causing them harm is it causing them financial distress all of those sorts of things and if the answers to all of those are yes then we can be more convinced that we've got something that looks like a game addiction um but you know the 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 science is not um conclusive in that area by any means at the minute yeah and i guess back to what we were talking about with these games that, that have a monetary uh a real life monetary, um, you know, consequence. I think in the book you talked about a gentleman that had spent like 13,000 pounds on, uh, you know, on this game for, to, to get more lives or something like that. Um, I mean, then, then, then there's a bigger consequence than just maybe, you know, wasting time. I mean, obviously time is invaluable too, but, um, um, but I think that's I think that's a good example though because so that guy I think he spent thirteen thousand dollars to to upgrade and he became the most powerful player on this particular server that mm-hmm. we were on. Is that problematic? If it was me that was doing that, yes, definitely, because I do not have that sort of money <laughs> uh, to fritter away on a game. Um, so in, inevitably, what would be happening there is that I'd be taking out a loan or I'd be hiding that from my wife. And, and those are all really problematic behaviors. So in my, in my case, yeah, it would be problematic. If that guy was Elon Musk, then 
it's not a problem because thirteen thousand dollars is is toy money. So, and I, I don't really know anything else about that person other than a few kind of uh, anecdotal stories about them. So I don't know what their personal situation yeah. is. I I personally don't think that any game that's ever been made is worth dropping thirteen thousand dollars on. Um, it's just a ludicrous amount of money to me. But if it's something that you can afford and it's well within your realms of possibility and it's not going to cause any harm, then it's it's not a problem. And this is this is where this issue comes yeah. in. You, know, you can't just... What, what you kind of want to do sometimes as, as a scientist is simplify some of these, create a questionnaire so that, you know, if I score more than 50 points on this questionnaire, then I can say that I'm addicted to a video game. Um, and you want the questions to be relatively simple. So they might be things like, how, how much of the of your time during a day do you spend playing video games so you can get a quantifiable number about, out of it? How much money do you spend on video games per day so you can get a quantifiable yeah. number out of it? But that's diff- whether that has a meaningful negative or positive effect or not is different. For right, different so, so to know how disruptive that is to somebody's life, you would have to know the context is basically what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. In the same way that you know, if you had a drug addiction, it would be the similar thing. If you were a, if you were yeah. a bazillionaire and you had a heroin or a you know opiate addiction, it probably wouldn't be that disruptive. You could maintain that for <laughs> you know <laughs> for for many years, and and you know. Whereas yeah. if you're yeah, if you basically. don't have a lot of money, then you'd end up you know committing crimes to you know feed that addiction or something. So so yeah. that makes sense. Hey there, we'll get back to the interview shortly. I just wanted to take a moment to ask a favor. To continue to bring you great science content, we need your help building our community. There are several ways you can help out. One, tell someone you know about us. Word of mouth carries a lot of weight. Two, follow us on social media. We're at ScienceCentric on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or number three, write a podcast review on iTunes. Reviews help this podcast get noticed. Thanks for your help. And now back to the show. So to bring it to bring it back to to my situation, because, hey, let's just talk about me um, now and my my family. <laughs> um, no, but my son, uh, another debate that we have in our house is uh, about Fortnite. So Fortnite uh, for for the audience, uh, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, it's a it's a first person shooting game. It's also very it has a lot of comedic elements to it um it's you know it it definitely looks like something that would appeal to kids in a way even though it's a you know somewhat violent game um so our concern with that is that that he would be playing a you know that that him playing that game would lead to aggression in the real world towards his classmates or he would act out in some way at school that he would think that that was appropriate what does the science say about aggression in video games? Is that something that we should be concerned about? And you mentioned that you know there are there are games, certain games are age appropriate. So I think Fortnite's definitely geared towards an older age than seven, uh, which is my son's age. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's the first thing to say about these sorts of games is that you know um, things like Call of Duty and Fortnite, they they do need to be directed to the right sorts of age groups. And you know, I don't think a, you know, it would be appropriate for seven-year-olds to play those games necessarily, yeah. unless they're under kind of parental guidance in the same way that you, know, you wouldn't let your kid watch a 15-rated movie unless you knew what the movie was and you were happy watching it with them and those sorts of things. Um, in terms of the science behind the whole violent video games and aggression debate, um, 
it's a real mess. So it kind of goes back to that thing that we were talking about earlier and that it's really hard to measure aggression in a meaningful way in the lab. Um, but also more than that, um, psychologists have done a pretty poor job of defining and operationalizing what they mean by violent video game. So if you think about a classic sort of experiment in this area, what you might do is get a group of people to play a violent game, a group of people to play a non-violent game, and then have some sort of aggression test later on. You want to see whether the levels of aggression differ in those two groups. And if they're higher in the violent game group, then you can, assuming that they don't differ in any other way from each other, then you can make a causal inference that it's the violent game that's caused that increase in aggression. The problem is with a lot of this research, the games that you pick for those two conditions are important. So you might pick something like Fortnite or Call of Duty for your violent game. What do you pick for your non-violent game? Well, you could pick something like Tetris or Candy Crush or something like that. But those games differ from each other in ways other than being violent or not. So uh, compare Tetris to Call of Duty. So one's a puzzle game, one's a shooter game, one's 3D, one's 2D, one's fast-paced, one's not, one's competitive, one, one isn't, and all these sorts of things. So it might be that one of those other factors drive the effects that you see. Right. So trying to trying to get comparable games is actually really hard. Um, it's just as hard as, as trying to come up with a decent measure yeah. of progression. Anyway, this is dodging the question. The question that you asked <laughs> is, what do we know about it? And, and really, the, the, the best evidence that we've got at the minute seems to suggest that there are associations between playing violent games at an early age and later levels of aggression. They're really small. They're really weak associations, and they're not really that much to worry about. There are other factors that will have much more of an impact on whether somebody's going to be aggressive or violent as a teenager than whether or not they played video games, violent video games early, earlier on in their life. Now, you could get a hundred other scientists on the show who would say completely the opposite thing. They would say, no, the research is unequivocally uh, showing that, that violent video games do cause aggression. And this is where the problem with the literature is. So the most widely used form of aggression measure in, in this area is something called the competitive reaction time task. And I'm not going to talk about it too much, but if you want yeah. to learn about it, you yes. can read my book. Um, but the, the key point from that is that if you look at all of the papers that have used this task um, to assess this violent games question over the years, there have been hundreds and hundreds of papers. But there are more ways in which scientists have analyzed the data from those papers than there are papers themselves. And what that practically means is that if you take a single data step from one of those studies and you analyze it in all of the different ways in which you can see in the literature, you can show anything from violent video games definitely causing aggression to violent video games definitely not causing aggression, which means that your results, your finding has nothing to do with any form of signal in the data. It's entirely down to the decision that you make about your analysis method. Which brings brings which it why back, all of these problems. Yeah, brings back to what we were talking about at the at the onset of this. Yeah, yeah. So when I say the best evidence suggests that there's not much to worry about, that's those are the studies where They've been pre-registered. The data is openly available, so we can be a little bit more sure that their methodologies are robust. Mm -hmm. Okay, well that's that's good to know. Um, I don't think uh, my son will be playing Fortnite anytime soon, but uh, <laughs> no, there are other much better games than Fortnite <laughs> to play for certainly for a seven-year-old. Um, okay, I just want to be mindful of the time. I think we've got for a whole hour, but this is so interesting. Um, the uh, 
why don't we why don't we end on a positive note so so sure um you know there's a lot of concern about video games there's a lot of concern about the the harms that screen time and 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 you know interacting with computers could have what are some of the positive things that that we're starting to see uh, from video games in and um what what can they do for us what how they how how can they help us in mm. in a couple minutes because we're running short on time <laughs> okay. So, so one thing very quickly that I'll say is that one thing that I don't talk about in the in the book so much is that there's a lot of research that suggests positive effects, like things like improvements in reaction times or memory and things like that. If you play video games, the reason that I don't talk about those in the book is that I'm similarly dubious about those effects as I am about the kind of aggression effects. I think there's similar sorts of issues in the way that those sorts of studies are done. So, for me, really, where we find positive effects of video games is in their ability to connect us with each other. And and I think this is something that um, people who don't play video games find a little bit counterintuitive in that you know, we view them as a very socially isolating experience, but they've never been that. As, as, as far back as games have existed, they've been things to do with other people. Um, and what I found personally is the value in video games is that they allow you to connect with people who you immediately have something in common with. You know, if you play World of Warcraft with somebody else, you immediately have a commonality with that person because you both like World of Warcraft. And that's a really nice, powerful thing. It allows you to connect with friends and family who you might otherwise not have much chance to um, uh, to talk to or see. And there's a, there's a story in the book that I go into about um, a very good friend of mine who moved up to Edinburgh and we kept in touch through Halo. So we played Halo not really to play a violent game, but to use it as a sort of social network or to phone each other without having to spend the money. Um, and I think for me, more personally as well, it, it allows us to connect with people who we might have lost. Um, so I talk about my dad quite a lot in the book. Um, he, he died when I was um, 14 and I've used games throughout my life. Um, a is a way to help process his death and, and go through um, a grief mechanism, but also to remember him as well and to sort of think about good times that I had with him. Um, and it sounds weird when you say video games help me to do that, but because they are such a creative medium and you can do whatever you want in the right sort of game, then they allow you to explore that aspect of human nature, grief and loss and how we feel and human emotion and things like that. They allow us to explore those things in a relatively mm -hmm. safe space. Yeah, and I, um, I, I, I would agree with you. I think that um, I look back on my positive experiences with video games and I'm by no means like a, I would never classify myself as a gamer, but I think back playing you know the very first atari the atari 2600 that came out and the very first nintendo and and my memories are always with friends and doing that with friends and we'd spend all day playing legend when legend of zelda came out and <laughs> and but but those times where i was just sort of playing by myself um after a while i just sort of felt like i need to do something different you know um it wasn't as fun yeah. to to play yeah um so so maybe that's that's a, a good dividing line although as you said the you know there's there's other uses and processing things and 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 we were talking about you know maybe being bored and and maybe sometimes you need that in your life and you just need a little bit of escape so that you can think about those um things that are hard to hard to process um yeah as, as yeah. any other diversion would would allow you to do yes um, yeah cool. absolutely all right yeah. well that's probably a great place to end pete um thanks again so much from for coming on uh one more time the book is called uh lost in a good game 
why we play video games and what they can do for us. And um, it's it's a really great book for anybody that that um, for like for myself, as I said, I'm not a gamer, and I feel like I'm sort of caught up on where we're at and and learned about some new games and and some things I'd probably like to try. Um, and um, and and just a great lot of great science, and then you've woven in your personal narrative of as well. So it's a really interesting book. Great, thank you very much for having me as well. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes of this podcast by heading over to sciencecentric.com support and making a donation or purchase. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.